Welcome to the Library Safety and Security Podcast with Dr. Steve Albrecht. I'm the very same Dr. Steve Albrecht, and this podcast is sponsored by Library 2.0 and produced by the founder of Library 2.0, Steve Hargenden. My topic for this half hour is about personal self-defense in the library. Safety and security sometimes requires people, employees in the library, uh, being able to protect, protect themselves. And I want to talk about some thoughts and themes about self-defense using the expertise and wisdom of my colleague, Dave Fowler. Dave is the CEO, president of PersonalSafetyTraining.com. Personal Safety Training is based in Idaho. Dave is a longtime veteran trainer. I've learned a lot from him. He's written several books about self-defense for employees, especially in healthcare environments, casinos, uh, public government, and in private sector organizations as well. So Dave is a a well-known expert in self-defense. I, in fact, went to a a pepper spray training certification course to be an instructor using Dave's methods uh, with him in Las Vegas many years ago, and we had a good time. So when I think about safety in the public library environment for employees, it's a rare possibility that employees would ever have to use hands-on self-defense, but one of the things we're going to talk about is Dave's theories and concepts about recognizing problematic behaviors in patrons, those types of things where you get that intuitive sense or you see physical changes in this person that might lead you to believe that they are going to be assaultive in their behavior. Dave's programs, typically, um, he trains people in casinos, healthcare, hospitals, uh, clinics, um, public sector environments where there may be a confrontational posture with a taxpayer, customer, stranger, uh, person receiving services from that organization. And one of the things that Dave always likes to talk about is reading the body language, though warning signs and the things that you might see um, in as a possible risk factor or a potential sign of violence in somebody that, that may be getting ready to attack. One of the things he talks about is changes in the person's facial expression. We see flushing where their face gets red. Uh, they stop talking. Uh, they may grind their teeth. They may have an affect in their facial muscles, which you know really shows anger instead of just either neutrality or an open posture. There are changes in eye contact. The person may have a darting set of eyes or a movement in their eyes where they look at the target that they want to strike. Sometimes people who want to fight will look at the the part that they want to hit with their fists or their hands. We see changes in the person's speech. They may get louder. They may get quieter. And I always think about in my threat assessment cases that I get more concerned when the person gets quieter in their behavior. Sometimes um, somebody who is loud and, and, and kind of threatening and obnoxious and sort of over the top is just uh, pontificating or posturing or what we call peacocking. Um, the person that sometimes has more likelihood to use violence is the person who gets quieter. Think about the guy who says, okay, this isn't over, but he doesn't say it out loud. Those people tend to concern me more. So their speech may slow down. They may get very quiet. Sometimes if they're getting ready to strike, the opposite is true, of course, where they get even louder and more louder, and then they stop stop talking. As soon as they do that, they throw a punch. We also see what Dave calls we also see what Dave calls um, nervous nuances, um, twitching, and hit the person's lips or face may twitch. You may see sort of a a growling type of a thing, almost an animalistic type of approach that we see in animals where the person bares their their teeth just like animals do. Other warning signs include the person's breath may speed up. They may get really kind of um, hyperventilating type of an approach or they, they'll get really, really shallow in their breathing. You can hear them puff almost like a bull, uh, almost like a snort comes out. 
They may seem uh, distracted or confused as they think about their next actions and the things they're going to do. Um, in, a, in a small space like a library, sometimes at a counter or, or maybe an enclosed lobby area, you may see the person start to pace or walk around in circles or, or get very fidgety because they're trying to figure out what to do with their body and what to do with that, that nervous energy that they have. The more signs Dave talks about on his website, the more signs that you see like that that we talked about in the changes in the, in the facial features and the body language, the more likely we see for chances of violence. We think about our response to people that have that kind of violence into their body language is recognizing it intuitively with our intuition in, in full operation as to what possibilities we might see in their behavior and what we need to do accordingly. Uh, the biggest thing, of course, is space, space and distance. And so we think about you know, the six-foot rule now with the pandemic. Space and distance is an important thing to keep in mind when self-defense is a possibility because you can't hit what you can't touch. So I also like the idea of proximic barriers, and I've talked about this in my training programs for years, what we use in the library to create space and distance and proximic barriers between somebody who's angry or threatening which could include desks, counters, tables, chairs, um, the carts, the half shelves, things like that. And also, if you think about proximate space and distance in a perfect world, it would be you leaving your workspace and going behind a locked door, calling the police or calling for help from colleagues or bosses as necessary in the situation, actually taking yourself out of that dangerous situation by putting a locked door between you. Um, I like the telephone also as a proximate barrier. We say sometimes to angry people, don't come down here, sir, we'll email you what you need. Uh, so we avoid that confrontation by using the telephone as a good proximate barrier. What follows are about 14 or 15 of Dave's best tips when it comes to responding to the potential for a violent encounter and the, the verbal and physical movements that we can do to diffuse this person and de-escalate them and avoid an escalating or violent confrontation with this person. One of the things Dave talks about, and I have uh, adopted this in a lot of my encounters with, with threatening people over my career, is to offset your body. Now, Dave refers to it as blading your body, but I like the phrase offset, which means that we get out of that toe-to-toe, -to -toe, confrontational, nose-to-nose, chest-to-chest posture. This is certainly more problematic with men. Male, males tend to have that he got in my face, he got in my space kind of a thing where going toe-to-toe, nose-to-nose really raises the, the emotional temperature of the encounter. But what we're talking about here is offsetting your body where you not, don't stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with a person. You stand more at a 45-degree angle so that you're not cha-chaing around the room. It's not a it's not a dance, but it's a movement on our part <clears throat> to keep ourselves out of that that face-to-face -face confrontational posture. So blading your body or offsetting your body really sends a message to the person that, look, I'm not trying to get in your face. I'm not trying to get in your space. I'm not trying to raise the emotional temperature here. The second is use your voice in a calming way. Use your voice to de-escalate the situation by not saying the phrase calm down, which we know never works, but, but being careful in our tones and modulating our tones in a way we're not trying to match this person yell for yell or scream for scream. We're trying to use what I would call the assertive whisper, and the assertive whisper says, let's talk over here, or I hear what you're saying, or I'm sorry you're upset. We use that de-escalating kind of, kind of phrases, those validating type of phrases, in connection with speaking in a way that does not try to match the person in terms of their vocal tone. The louder they get, the more in control we want to be. Don't forget that you're being valued, judged, and witnessed when you are handling difficult situations by other members of the public, by other patrons, by children, by adults, by your boss, by your coworkers. So you don't have the opportunity to lose control, and you think about what you need to do to stay in control when you're dealing with folks that are angry.
One of Dave's most significant points is controlling your behavior. Controlling your behavior says, I need to be a professional person in the service environment here. As loud and obnoxious or threatening or even dangerous as this person needs to be, I have to protect myself. I have to demonstrate professionalism. I'm going to be value judged by other people and what I did. This is a situation that cops sometimes forget, that they're being observed and filmed all the time, even filmed by their own cameras on their own bodies, about how they interact and act with people. So. It's important to maintain control of your own behavior. <clears throat> you can have your hands up in, in sort of a, what I would call a Secret Service hands gesture, which is that sort of pyramid where we touch all our fingertips together. It's a gesture that says, I'm in control. Uh, if you watch uh, TV shows where experts are being interviewed, they oftentimes have their hands in that, that, that pyramid sort of a position, which is really demonstrates expertise. It says, I'm calm in this situation. I know what to do. Um, if you control your body, and your body language by not folding your arms or not rolling your eyes or not sighing around somebody who's angry or not acting frustrated with them, not using body language gestures that show contempt or condescension, we're going to be ahead of the game. So think about your body language in terms of neutral body language, uh, approachable body language. You can be protective with your hands as necessary, and that's where the Secret Service hands comes in, this, this concept of being protective around the front of your core by having your hands in this kind of pyramid position where you touch your fingertips together. But really look at your body language as, as not being slouching, not being overly assertive. You know, it's not a military posture. It's a relaxed posture where you're kind of neutral. But you're also using body language to not demonstrate condescension. Uh, that's also valuable to not do that with your tone. Think about how many times that we're, we get a little tired at the end of the day, and we can be condescending on the telephone now we speak to people. We can be condescending face-to-face -face as well. Think about levels of respect when dealing with angry people, and sometimes just using this person's name, Mr. Jones, Miss Smith, whatever it happens to be, in a way that demonstrates professionalism but also courtesy to this person could go a long way. If they tell you their first name only and you use their first name, you know, thanks for telling me, Ed. Thanks for telling me, Marie, what, what you're all about. I hear you. I, I can see you're frustrated. I can see you're upset. Sometimes using your name, introducing yourself, not as Mr. or Miss library employee, but but Steve or, or Dave or Larry or, or Jose or or uh, Jenny or whatever name you have that gets a sense of human connection with this person. This person understands that you're a human being and you try to see them as a human being as well by using their name politely and carefully. Dave talks about assessing the area and the space around you, which is, do I have an escape route? Do I have a, a forward place to go? Can I back up without getting myself into a physical corner? Can I step around a proximate barrier, a table, a desk, a counter? Can I leave space for my colleagues or bosses, coworkers or bosses, to come over and support me, to help me and change the, the ratios of confrontation? It's important not to touch people. Uh, unless in a self-defense technique, and we think about the Secret Service hands as the primary example of that, either a blocking or a pushing move that you can do where you have your hands in front of you in that pyramid style and you can push the person away. But it's important not to touch people. Sometimes in our culture, we think that putting our hands on somebody lowers the emotional temperature because it seems friendly. Certainly in the days of COVID, we don't want to get that close to people. And certainly in other cultures, you know, touching is a, is a violation of space and it really jacks up the emotional temperature. So Try not to touch people or their stuff. I'm especially cognizant of this when I deal with people I suspect are mentally ill. If they have, you know, paranoid delusions or schizophrenic belief systems where they're, they're convinced the world is, is after them and kind of a conspiracy thinking, it's really important not to touch them or their stuff. It really, it really raises their fear level and, and jacks them up if we touch them or their stuff.
And then think about how eye contact is too much of a good thing in some situations and not enough in other situations. We need to use careful eye contact. And careful eye contact says that we don't stare into people's souls. We don't act intimidating with our eye contact. Think about how dogs and cats get ready to fight. Some, some of the two between two you know, potentially fighting do animals, dogs or cats, will break eye contact to say, hey, I give up. I'm, I'm not the aggressor in this situation. But you can see sometimes, especially with human beings, the more eye contact we do that's seen as a challenge, eye contact that we use is seen as... as um, as um, sort of in this person's physical space by using your eyes can be too much. So if necessary, break eye contact by looking away sl slightly. Try not to get into an eye contact battle where, where it's, you know, we're not having a staring contest. You can sometimes lower the emotional temperature just by looking away at something and then coming back to the person. We often talk in my programs about the importance of active listening, and active listening is really connected to the work that's done by Dr. George Thompson and his book, Verbal Judo. I think the book came out in 96 or so and has a second edition as well. So look up Dr. George Thompson, T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N, and his book, Verbal Judo. There's also the Verbal Judo Institute, which is, teaches similar programs that Dave Fowler teaches at his personal safety training um, company. So there's lots of places that offer this type of training that you might be able to get um, in, in group rates, whether it's Dave's company, whether it's, it's a Verbal Judo Institute, whether it's the crisis intervention training, the CIT training. Um, there's lots of things that are sometimes connected to healthcare training. We give to people in emergency rooms and in health clinics that also would be very useful for people working in, in public government, like in library facilities. So active listening is, is uh, George Thompson talked about his LEAPS model. That's active listening is the L, where you're making eye contact, you're coming closer to the person to sort of turn towards them in a rapport-building way without getting into their space or violating COVID rules. You have empathy, which is the E of LEAPS, right? You're empathic listener. You say, I hear you. You're validating in your, in your comments to them. You say things like, I understand. I'm sorry you're upset. Um, thanks for telling me about that. Let me take some notes. Taking notes certainly slows down the the, temp the, the emotional sort of uh, response of people and demonstrates empathy at the same time. It also gets you some good information if you need to fill out a, a um, security incident report or speak to the police about this person's behavior down the road. The A of active listening, if we start off at leaps and we go to L to E to empathy to A, is asking questions. And the problem, I think, sometimes is we ask too many uh, closed-ended questions, too many yes-no questions in dealing with persons. Did you fill out the form? Did you turn it in? Did you do this? Did you do that? Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. What we're trying to do is ask more open-ended questions, extractive questions designed to get them to tell their story, and maybe to buy us a little time while we change the ratios of confrontation, wait for our colleagues or bosses to come over to help intervene, or wait for security if you have that function in your library, or even the arrival of the police. So asking open-ended questions, extractive questions, trying to get them to tell their story, tends to be more helpful. Tell me who you talked to, sir. Okay, ma'am, after you turned in your, your library card application, what, what, what did we give you as notification afterwards? After your son came home and said this, this, and this, then, then who did you call in our office to speak to? Things like that designed to get this person to tell their story. While they're telling their story, not only are we buying a little time to change the ratios of confrontation, but we're also letting this person kind of get some energy work down, this, this energy balloon that sometimes people have, which can be quite pumped up. That's why we don't say calm down to people who are not calm. We let them talk. Um, there's a thing about, about dealing with people who are angry where we apologize for things that have happened in the past. I'm sorry that happened to your son or daughter when they came here yesterday. I'm sorry you had a bad experience with our employee over the telephone. 
when we apologize for things, it doesn't mean we did it or we're responsible necessarily. Sometimes it's the patron's fault. Sometimes it's our fault. But we simply check a box in somebody's head that says, at least I got the people in the library to hear me and to apologize for what happened. It can go a long way towards lowering the emotional temperature by simply apologizing, saying, I'm sorry that happened when you came in. That's not our intention. That's not the experience we want you to have when you come in here or your son or daughter. We're sorry that happened. It's not a big deal. When I talk to my attorney friends, they disagree with me, but it's not a big deal to apologize. It doesn't mean we're guilty of anything. It just says human beings make mistakes or things get misunderstood or misconstrued. We apologize when these things happen. It goes a long way. One of the other tips that Dave talks about is not over-promising or under-promising. Sometimes we can promise things where we don't actually do those things and the person doesn't believe us or they don't trust us anymore. So don't say, I'll get right back to you and don't get back to the person for three days. When you say, I'm going to make sure that I have someone in our office call you within 24 hours on this thing, make sure that happens. We go a long way towards building trust when we keep our promises. We go a long way towards breaking trust when we don't keep our promises. And that's, that's a concern that we have sometimes where we'll say things, especially in the stress of the moment, that we haven't thought about. And we sometimes realize later on that we can't keep the promise or that we've overpromised for the person. You say, I'll, I'll process your refund or I'll make sure you get a, a copy of this. And then we forget to do it. Uh, we get caught up in other things. It goes a long way towards having an impact on our trust or credibility with the library patron. When you're talking to people, it's good to get specifics. And when this person says, my son was mistreated here yesterday, you say, oh, okay, well, tell me exactly what happened, who was involved, uh, who did this person, uh, who, who they talked to, you know, who did your son or daughter talk to in our library envir environment that was an employee, or did they talk to another patron? Please tell me exactly what happened. Sometimes people, when they're upset, like to make sweeping generalizations. And you hear it in phrases like, you always, or you never, or you people always, or you people never, or you library people always do this, or you library people never do that. Sometimes people, when they're upset, make sweeping generalizations. And it's easy sometimes to get caught up in a situation where you think that's always the way that they perceive the library, or that's always the way that this person sees the library, because they think of it in sort of a totality. What we're trying to get to is more specifics. When I teach my classes on negotiations, one of the things I, I use kind of similar to this is the idea of testing for truth. And testing for truth says, that's, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more about what happened. Or I'm sorry you feel that way. Tell, tell me how you got to that conclusion. Those things that you test for truth, sometimes you can help get around, especially if the person starts to comply and starts to communicate more on a reasonable level. You can test for truth and figure out that they don't really believe those sweeping generalizations that they made. I mean, think about how couples in relationships argue, and sometimes they'll say, you, you never do the dishes, you never take out the trash, you never do this, you never do that, you're always doing this, you're always doing that. And it, it causes a real sense of anxiety in the conversation because the person on the receiving end of that knows that they don't always do those things. They, they, they do take out the trash, they do do the dishes, they don't always do certain things or not do other things. So sometimes when, when people say that stuff, always or never, or they make those sweeping generalizations, they're quite frustrated in the situation that they're facing and they're not, they don't really believe that's true but sometimes they say it because that's the only thing they can think of to really kind of continue the argument. So um, think about using that tool of testing for truth and getting clarification in the communication process and asking for specific examples if this person's willing to give them as to what they believe took place especially in the past. I think it's important to tell people and I talk about this in a model I use called GREAT for customer service. Greet the, the patron with eye contact, reassure them that you're going to work on their behalf, explain what you're going to do, act accordingly, and then thank them. I think it's important to 
if we go back to not making promises that we're not going to keep, but that we clarify our intention to help them. Here's what I'm going to do for you. Here's the next step that I can do for you. I'm going to go talk to this person and come right back. Or can I get you to wait right here until I get that information for you? That we give this person express instructions as to what we're going to do, and we express our intention to help them. And maybe here we need a little bit of role playing. It can be frustrating. You can be fearful. You can be difficult to have conversations with people that are out of control. You're trying to be professional and polite and, and not make the situation worse. They don't sometimes think about any of those things. When you're looking at your intention to help, you're trying to say, hey, I hear you. I, I can see you're upset. When you say to somebody, I can see you're upset, what it means is you don't have to get louder. You don't have to get worse. You don't have to get more over the top. I see where you are in this situation. So you're expressing your intention to help can sometimes check the box in this person's head that says, hey, at least I got somebody to listen to me. At least I got somebody to pay me act on my behalf and, and serve, serve whatever needs I, I have in terms of my difficulties with the situation that they're facing. Think about how you can redirect people. Let's walk over here. Let's go over to here and sit down. One of the things that I've suggested to people and from a security standpoint when dealing with angry people sometimes is to go and sit at a table, go and sit somewhere at a desk in the library. And you say, why would I do that? That sounds dangerous. Well, if your intuition is in control and you look at the situation and you kind of value judge it and say, you know, if we go over and sit here like normal human beings and we can keep social distance, we can, we can have a space and, and distance between us, proximate barriers, that this may turn out to be a better conversation. Um, I, I got this from my bar bouncer friends. Um, one of my colleagues, uh, Robert Smith in San Diego, is a, a, a trainer for, for bar bouncers and people that work in nightclubs and things like that. We always talk about the value of sitting down. If you've ever been in a bar and seen a bar fight, and I've seen a few in my career, most people start bar fights either inside or outside the, the bar itself, and they're standing up. People don't sit outside in the bar on the ground and fight. People don't sit down at tables in bars and fight. They do it standing up. So in a, in a perfect situation where your intuition kicks in and you say, you know, can we go sit over here, sir or ma'am? I think, you know, I feel more comfortable. We just sat and talked for a second. Um, it may be, you know, you can come over here and sit down. You ask them to sit, you know, five, six, ten feet away from you. And you say, let's talk. And when you do that, it says, I see you as a human being. I see you as a uh, person that I, I'm going to trust not to act inappropriately. I'm going to ask and trust that you not, you know, react in a violent way. <clears throat> I have space and distance between us. I also have this proximate barrier, which is the desk. Um, when we sit down together, we act like human beings. We, we come out of sort of primitive thinking and primitive communication style and more, more kind of a mature communication style, more of a less emotional and more sort of down-to-earth communication style. So, you know, I'm not saying that you sit down with everybody who is super angry. I'm not saying you sit down with people who are physically violent towards you. I'm not saying you sit down with people who are, are mentally unstable when they, they're dealing with you. But think about it in certain situations where you walk and talk with people. Um, I'm, I'm a, a proponent of walking people to the exit. I'm a proponent of walking people to another department or another part of the facility and go, you know, I'm heading over that way myself, sir or ma'am, even if you're not. I just, just head them off in that direction. <clears throat> the Ritz-Carlton Hotel chain, their motto for their employees is, we are ladies and gentlemen who serve ladies and gentlemen. And one of the things that they do in their, in their work sort of interaction with all the guests that come into their, their hotels and their expensive facilities, if you've ever seen a Ritz-Carlton Hotel, they're not cheap is that they go where the, where the guest is going. So if the guest says, where is the restaurant, the employee is trained to say, I'm heading that way myself. And the, the guest says, where is the bell station? They say, you know, I'm heading that way myself, I'll walk with you. And when the guest says, where is the gift shop? The person says, you know, I was heading that way myself, let's walk to the gift shop together, shall we? 
and whatever you're doing as an employee of the Ritz-Carlton, and I'm guessing that they walk around in circles a lot, right? It's hard to get from point A to point B, is that you want to make sure that the person feels heard on the way. So on the way to the gift shop, you say, hey, what brings you into town? And, you know, are you here for a conference or a, or a convention or you're on vacation? Can I recommend our, our restaurant? I mean, things like that, they can have those kinds of conversations. Now, what we want to do is just follow that similar model, which says, we tend to get better results, especially in body language and especially around this idea of dominance and eye contact when we're walking side by side. This is especially true with men, but it's true with men and women where we're walking more in a neutral way, side by side. You're more collegial, even though that may not be the other person's intention. They still could be upset. But when we walk side by side, it's, hey, we have kind of a shared goal. We're going the same place. So think about how redirecting their movements towards another part of the facility, redirecting their movements towards them the exit of the library could could go a long way towards you getting back into some control and them sort of agreeing to go along with the program. So, <clears throat> I, you know, my sense of dealing with people that are threatening and, and even violent is that you have to use intuition. You have to keep your personal safety first and foremost. You can't use all these techniques of communication skills that we've been talking about here unless you're not safe first. So you need to be safe physically before these things will work for you. And sometimes you need to say, I have to physically disengage with this person because when I read the warning signs, it looks like they're getting ready to, to attack me, and that's not what we want, certainly. You have the right to break contact with dangerous people. You have a, the right to break contact with threatening people. You don't have to stand around and be assaulted or battered as part of your work by anybody, by any means whatsoever. It's not in your job description. But if you look at situations where the person is simply perturbed or angry or, or fearful and angry and, and maybe aggressive in their language to you because it's only the way they know how to communicate, is that you say we're going to be more effective by just trying to roll with it and, and get them to understand that we're not the enemy and get them to understand that we're trying to be in a service modality and get them to understand that we can't help them if we don't know what's going on. So I, I like the fact that sometimes people can get upset and yell, but they calm down after a few moments when they realize they're being out of control. Um, that doesn't always happen with everybody, but sometimes if you just wait while they vent, they'll self-manage that, that big energy balloon themselves before they get into a situation where they just keep going on and on. Now, certain people um, who have anger management issues and do this out on the road and do it at, at other places and in restaurants and bars and other things where they end up getting kicked out or getting arrested or getting in fights, that type of thing, sometimes they don't hear the tools that we've been talking about. But for the rest of the population who sometimes is just irritated or, or feels perturbed about how they were treated or, or wants some sort of, quote, justice from the situation that their kid was involved in or they were involved in, that, that your listening skills go really a long way. And then just read the situation. Read the person's body language. Read what they're all about before you decide what to do. Kind of get a sense of the situation. And, and if you need some help, get help from coworkers and bosses, from security or even the police. But many things that we're talking about here, you can handle yourself just by using the tools that we have discussed. So that's my sort of infomercial for my colleague, Dave Fowler, and his company, again, is personalsafetytraining.com. You can also look at his um, material online that goes to a program he teaches called Avade, A-V-A-D-E, Avade. You can also look at uh, George Thompson's Verbal Judo Institute. Thompson passed away a couple of years ago, and uh, his Verbal Judo Institute continues, so it's verbaljudo.com, uh, I think, is the website for that. You can also look for um, healthcare training in uh, crisis uh, intervention. Uh, they also do programs as well. And when you think about the wide variety of resources for self-defense, kind of psychological and, and personal self-defense that exist out there, a lot of things can be customized for the library environment. 
So my thanks to the producer of the Library Safety and Security Podcast, Steve Harganen. For more information, visit the Library 2.0 website at library20.com. Until next time, I'm Dr. Steve Albrecht. Thanks for listening to the Library Safety and Security Podcast.